there's a fundamental truth within the Christmas story uh, that is vital for us to understand because it explains the reason why uh, Jesus came to live among us. And as we've seen through our first few studies, uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Him coming to earth and taking on the form of a human person, was neither accidental nor incidental. God had an eternal purpose and has an eternal purpose in what He has done in sending His Son. And it has everything to do with our spiritual condition and it has everything to do with His amazing love. Now, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, if you have a Bible, turn there. uh, Because here in the middle of this account of that night in Bethlehem, the angels make a statement that appeals to the greatest necessity of mankind. And that need, that, that hunger, that necessity that every single person who's ever lived has is created because of sin. Now, we've read this passage a couple times and I want to pick it up uh, right here uh, starting in verse, uh, if I could read my Bible, that would be helpful, in verse uh, 9 this morning. But I want to encourage you, if you have never memorized this text, Um, or you're kind of getting used to it now that we're studying it week after week, I want to encourage you to memorize uh, Luke 2, 1 to 14 this year. Maybe do it as a family. We used to do it when I was a kid before we got to open the presents. I would say, we're going to recite the Christmas story. Like, oh, mom, but it was great. I remember it. And every year I think about it. And when I start to hear somebody talking about it, it's right there in my memory. So I want to encourage you, memorize this text. It's only 14 verses. Everybody can do it. If the little kids can do it, right, we can do it. If Linus can do it, we can do it. Linus didn't have a script, right? He wasn't holding a Bible. I know it's a cartoon, but still. You can memorize this. We memorize a lot of things, all the passwords, all the telephone numbers. We can memorize 14 verses of Scripture. So do it as a family, okay? That's my little sermonette for the day. Now I get to preach the real sermon. All right, let's start in verse 9. In the same region... There were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now the first part of the message that comes is by a single angel. And this angel tells them the good news of great joy that a Savior has been born that it's Christ the Lord, it's the Anointed One, it's the Messiah, and here's how you can find Him. But I want you to notice in the text that the second part of the message in verse 14 is delivered by a multitude of angels, and the multitude of angels fills the sky, and they're praising God, and they're explaining the event from God's standpoint. Now, I've studied this passage many times, you've studied this passage many times, We've read it, we've memorized it, and for the last two weeks, we've studied it in here. But it really struck me this week, for the first time, the fact that the two messages, uh, that the message is delivered in two parts, 
by different numbers of angels. Now, the Spirit includes that detail. God obviously intended that detail. So we have to ask some questions. Why did the Lord set it up this way? Why does He send one? And then for the very last part of the message to the shepherds, He sends everybody else. Now think about that for a minute, because that's not coincidental. And if we can peer into heaven just for a minute, let's get the picture. The Lord is standing there with His angels, and He directs the first angel to go down and to talk to the shepherds while an uncountable number of angels stand and wait until the first angel gets done with the message about the signs of the baby. And then the Lord says, and I know I'm projecting here, but this is, I believe, how it went. Then the Lord says, all right, everybody else go. And immediately, as he finished talking about, this shall be a sign unto you, you'll find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, the text says, in other words, God says, go, and immediately a multitude of angels goes down and appears right behind the other angel. The shepherds are already terrified because there's one angel and that was enough. And then all of a sudden, the sky is just filled with brightness. And a huge flock, a huge crowd, a huge multitude of angels are just praising God. Can you imagine that? Imagine what that looked like. Now, the fact that God does it this way tells us that there's special significance to what they're saying and what they're doing. So let's look at it for a second. What are they saying? The first thing they're doing is they are praising God. They are praising the one who is the author of this intervention into human history by the Son of God. And they're praising the only one who deserves credit and praise for what's happening. Now, that takes away any claim that we would have of being the agents of our own salvation. That takes away any uh, credit that we might say that, oh, yes, I can save myself and I can do this and this and I can pray this and this and I can serve other people and whatever. And when I get to heaven, God will give me credit for all my good works. No, this phrase right here takes that away because it says it's necessary to send Christ and God gets the credit for being the one who now is going to save his people. It's only because of God's love, it's only because of God's mercy that we can talk about that night today because God looked at our spiritual condition and said they need a Savior. And as the angels show us God alone gets all the glory. He should get the glory. It's His actions that have provided salvation. It's His intervention that has provided the Savior. And it's Him that gives us joy and peace. So He sends a vast crowd of angels to do nothing else but to praise Him. And just in case we're inclined at this time of year to forget who produced all of this, the angels are evidence that we're supposed to praise God. Your praise at this time of year should be unlike any other time of year other than the resurrection. God has intervened. God has saved. God has sent His Son for us. And the angels who are waiting and then go in an instant and they come and they fill the sky, all they do is say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Glory to God in the highest 
for what he has done. And then second, look at the next part of it. We see that the angels had a distinctive message of their own. Now when you take this in two parts, first part, one angel, second part, a multitude of angels, when you take the, the in two parts, you see that the first part of the message was centered on teaching us and directing us and showing the shepherds, here's how you go. But when you get to verse 14, the second part of the message is centered on showing God's intent for sending Jesus. Most of us have memorized this, if you've been saved a while, most of us memorize this in the King James. How many memorize this passage in the King James? Show me your hand. Two of you. Well, that's great. So we're not fighting anything this morning. You remember I talked about Charlie Brown. You remember Charlie Brown Christmas? How many have seen Charlie Brown Christmas? Okay, all of you have seen Charlie Brown Christmas, but only two of you have memorized this passage. We got some work to do in the new year, right? That that is ironic, correct? So we can pretty much, probably from our memory, remember when Linus gets up there, lights please, and the lights go off, and everybody's standing on the side, Snoopy's on the stage, and all that kind of stuff. And Linus starts to give the Christmas story. Well, he quotes it from the King James. And as he quotes it, he says at the end, and on earth, peace, goodwill to all men. Here in the New American Standard, which I'm preaching from, you may have a different version, it says, on earth, peace among men with whom he's pleased. Now, those two say something a little bit different, don't they? So which is it? Is it peace and goodwill offered to all men? Or is it peace only to those who have his favor because they trust in Christ? This has become a little bit of a a mystery, a controversy in recent years because we've gotten away from the King James, which says peace on earth, goodwill to all men, and we've moved to these other translations. So which is it? The answer is that it's both. The, The original text says peace on earth, goodwill among men. So it allows for either interpretation. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible is open to whichever one we want. The fact is that both explanations are true at the same time, which is how the angels meant it. God's offer of reconciliation with man is an offer of grace and peace to all people. It is something we don't deserve. It's something we cannot earn. It's not something he has to offer. It's because he loves all people and he doesn't desire that anybody would be separated from him for all eternity. So it is an offer of peace and goodwill to all men. At the same time, to those who know that, to those who have recognized and repented of their sins, and those who have received salvation and redemption through Christ, there is an eternal peace that comes from being called one of his own. In other words, both meanings are simultaneously complementary. It is both Christ has been sent into the world to offer peace and redemption to all people and that those who have received that redemption have peace and have joy for all eternity because they've been reconciled to Christ. Did you get that? I didn't lose you, right? Reconciliation is at the heart of this, and reconciliation is a great biblical word that has a deep meaning. I want you to turn, keep your place here, we're coming back, turn over to 2 Corinthians 5 for just a minute. 2 Corinthians 5. 
Because what God did in sending Christ is perfectly explained here by the Spirit through Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 17. Many of you have memorized this verse. If you haven't, that's another thing on the list to do by now in Christmas. Luke 2, 1 to 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, this is our job, Christians. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. Can you imagine the seriousness of our lives based on 2 Corinthians 5.20? God is making his appeal through us as his ambassadors. Therefore, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, here's Luke 2 in 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, when we read scripture, as we know as students of the Bible, whenever we see repetition, the Holy Spirit is saying to us, there's something that you need to pay attention to. And you will notice in verses 17 and 18 that four times he uses the word reconcile or reconciliation. That is because the Spirit of God is saying to us, Christian reader, pay attention to what I am saying here about reconciliation. Verse 17 says that when we trust in Christ as our Savior, that God changes our spiritual nature in such a profound way, listen now, that we are actually reborn spiritually. He makes us into a brand new creation. When you trust Christ, you're not the same as you were before. Your internal nature is not the same as it was before. Your spirit, your temperament, your characteristics, your way of thinking, your physiology changes. Your eternity changes. Your thinking changes. Your mindset changes. Your heart changes. Everything changes in that moment. And here's the key. That personal change should be obvious, not only to us, but to everyone around us. There should be no question that we belong to Christ when we're reconciled to Him. And though we're still going to struggle with sin, and we all do, it should have less of a hold on our hearts and minds every day, because we renounce it every day. And we conform to Christ, and we mature in our faith and our lifestyle. This is the work of God in us. And it should be clear. And the verse makes it clear, if you look back at 17 and 18, that this is not something that we just decide one day that we're going to make happen, or we manufacture it, or we start to change, or we try to make it happen. The transformation is from the Lord. It's by His Spirit that we are filled And the change will only occur when we finally die to self and say, Lord, I'm worthless, but you have made me worth everything because you sent your son. I commit my life to you. 
change me. And in that moment that we're reconciled to God, God changes us. It's not by our effort. It's by His grace. And it is only when He has control that it will take place. Now, if we can just get that one spiritual principle, it will dramatically change how we think. It'll change how we obey. It'll change how we handle temptation. It'll change how we trust. It'll change how we pray. And it'll change how we stress and worry. And if we need a reminder that, that, that this is the right thing to do or some kind of encouragement that, that this is the right path and that it's far better that, than living for ourselves and trying to be self-sufficient and hoping for the best, all we have to do is look back at verse 18, verse 19, and verse 21. Because there are amazing truths in those three verses. Run through it real quick. Verse 18. God has reconciled us to Himself through Christ. There is no other vehicle. There is no other way. There is no other option. If we are going to be reconciled to God and accepted by God, it is only through Jesus Christ. Second, verse 19. God was in Christ. If there's any question about the deity of Christ, or that He was just another great prophet who spoke, but we have to listen to all the other prophets, we go to 2 Corinthians 5.19. If you're trying to encourage and impress upon somebody's heart that they need to trust in Christ, go to 2 Corinthians 5.19. Because it says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. In other words, He saw this as so crucial that you and I be saved, and that the world be saved, that He didn't just send some surrogate angel down there and say, tell you what, you take care of it. He said, I am going to inhabit human flesh myself. And I am going to bring reconciliation that means that I am not willing to count your sins against you because you trust in me. Now to accomplish that, I know this is heady stuff this morning, but stay with me, look at verse 21. To accomplish this, He allowed every single sin that has ever been committed and will ever be committed to be placed on Christ. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He was pure. And God said, I'm going to put all the sin that will ever be committed on my Son, and my Son will be the one who is the sacrifice for you. Not just so you can receive righteousness. Look at it. This is beautiful. Somebody's going to say amen after this verse, verse 21. Not so that we can just receive righteousness, so that we actually become righteousness. God doesn't just say, I'll make you good. He says, you are perfect in my sight. Can you imagine such a thing? And it's not because we said, okay, God, I'll finally try to be good. I know you're going to be happy. And God says, that's wonderful. Thank you for making an effort. God says, justifiably so, you're filthy, you're dirty, there's no purity, there's not a single person that's righteous. So I'm going to send the one who is righteous, and I'm going to dump all your sin on him. And he's going to die for you. 
Not just so you can become good. So that you will become righteousness embodied. I don't know about you, but that's got to change the way I live this week. God says you become righteousness. He does it all. By his mercy, he decides to offer reconciliation and then to fulfill it. He becomes the means, look at the text, by which the reconciliation happens. And then to complete the reconciliation, he defeats and overcomes and puts to death sin, which prevented the reconciliation. But this reconciliation can only be accomplished by first placing all the sin on Christ and allowing him to be sacrificed in our place. That right there, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, is why the baby's in the manger. That is why Christ came. You see, there's a heavenly exchange that has to take place for us to be delivered from sin and death and hell. And because God loves every single person, He makes it possible and offers it to every single person. He wants to reconcile the world to himself. And that word reconciliation has two wonderful meanings. Now most of us think of reconciling in terms of an unbalanced checking account. Or in terms of some relationship that's been broken. When our numbers don't agree with the banks, which was more common before online banking, when you actually used a checkbook and got a monthly statement in the mail. Remember that, the dark ages, like 15 years ago? When you actually had to wait, you couldn't go online and just click, 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 oh, there's my account, and there's the instant money that came out. You actually had to wait for the mail. And the mail would come to your door and stick it through a slot. I know I'm not that old, right? You guys remember this? Stick it through the slot. And you'd get it. And there's my monthly statement. Now I've got to get my checkbook and I've got to compare it and make sure it's right. That was called reconciling the account. It means you've got to figure out what's missing or what you forgot to subtract or how the bank messed up. The idea was to make it right. Now that also applies to relationship. Like when a family fractures over something like money or care of parents, or dividing a will, or Packers Bears, or, or who hosts Christmas this year, whether they're going to have turkey or ham, all the wonderful things that we fight about as families, right? For some of you, that's not funny. For some of you, the holidays are genuinely sad because there are unreconciled relationships that are out there that haven't been healed. Maybe one year somebody said some harsh words and it kind of just came out or the joke went too far and, and, and no one now wants to let it go. Or somebody was offended because you said something about the scallop potatoes. Yeah, It's amazing to me what, what trivial things and what insensitive comments can do to ruin the peace. And then people selfishly hold on to it as leverage. If that's you this morning, you need to make that right today. Don't let the holiday be ruined because you're holding on to something somebody said 10 years ago. Go to that person and confess that you're holding it and ask for forgiveness. You may be surprised how much that can do. And if you're the one that has been offended, then just get over it and offer forgiveness before it's asked. You know why? Because that's what Christ did. 
Let's not allow the, the relationships in our lives to be fractured because we're holding on to something. God looked at us and said, you're filthy, but I love you. And I'm going to reconcile you to me. And I'm not going to do it by demanding something of you. I'm going to do it by demanding something of me. Can you imagine that? And yet we want to argue about scalloped potatoes and football. There's a second meeting that's so beautiful. Look back at the text for a minute. The Greek word here in verse 16, uh, excuse me, verse 18, that God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, namely, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the word to himself, that that Greek word, that particular word, means something a little different than balancing. This word actually means to exchange, to return something to favor with something else. You see the picture of the cross in that text? That Christ's death was our payment, both to satisfy the deadly price of sin and also to free us from his cur- its curse. He took our place, he exchanged himself on our behalf and made himself the ransom for us. Then when we trust in Him as our Savior, He reconciles us to Himself. He makes the exchange and He brings us back to the original relationship that we had before the fall. It cost Him everything and He wanted to do it because He loves us. I was thinking about the concept of exchanging this week, especially since Christmas, scary, this thought, is just a week away. And we all know that there are times in Christmas that, that we get a gift that we don't like or that we didn't want or we're always the one that's giving those presents. Thank you, that would be me. Or it's the wrong size. I always love when you're starting a present. Well, you can always take it back. The gift receipt's inside. Just I, You won't like it. Just take it back. And I didn't really mean to wrap it. You're not. You're going to hate it. And Right? You guys have one of those people in your family? I'm so insecure about giving presents. Like, I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> why budget? I'm sorry. I just—it's the wrong thing. I did. I just—I didn't do right. I'm sorry. Which takes all the joy out of the person giving the present, right? You're gonna hate this, but God bless you. Merry Christmas. I love you. <laughs> Things are so disposable now. And gas is so expensive. I was thinking about this this week. Sometimes we have to weigh the actual cost of time and money to know whether we want to go over and stand in line with the receipt that took us three hours to find to return something because all that effort may be a wash financially. If the gift's under 10 bucks, you may not want to bother. Just keep it. It's like flying to a place that's an hour away. By the time you go to the airport and wait in line, go through security, catch the flight which is late, land, and have to rent a car, you could have driven it. I mean, any, any trip now under four hours, I'm not being a travel guide, this is just on my head this morning. Any trip under four hours, you probably should just drive it. Any gift that's under ten bucks, why bother taking it back? I mean, it'll cost you that much to go to the store. Right? Somebody say Amen. A fervent brother this morning. Well, we had so many problems with that flooring. I can't even tell you. I still have a bad taste in my mouth. 
I literally, I'm not joking here, I literally called the manufacturer in New York and the store in Milwaukee just about every day for a month. Just trying to get a refund. Just trying to get somebody to talk to me. And I kept getting the runaround. And no one wanted to take responsibility for the faulty flooring. And they wouldn't return my calls. And then I got stonewalled. And I got to the point, as God is my judge, where I felt like giving up. Where I, it was the Lord's money. I couldn't do that. But I, I got to the point where I was just like, I can't handle this anymore. Now, I'm usually the one, and my wife will tell you this, I'm usually the one that likes to do the exchanging and the returns. Get the money back in the account. We don't need it. Just take it back. But But... There are times, right, I have a point here, where, where this becomes a major hassle. And we ask ourselves, do I really want to go to the effort? Is it really worth it for me to make that exchange? How many are glad this morning that God didn't ask those questions? God didn't say, look at that Rhodes. Good grief. How much sin is that guy going to do? How much is he not going to grow in the Lord? How much is he not going to pray? How much is he not going to worship? How much is he not going to study his Bible? When is he going to get his act together? And believe me, he's saying the same thing about you. But he doesn't say, oh, I can't handle it anymore. Just let him go to hell. He says, no. I'm going to reconcile him to me. And I'm going to pay a heavy Price. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Now I believe there's a disconnect in our culture, and, and our, trouble, our, our, our culture at this point, I believe, has some trouble believing that and relating to it. Because our society and our impatience have conditioned us to think that there shouldn't be a heavy cost for things. We don't want it to be like that. We want quick Easy solutions. We want a card to swipe. We want a phone that has all the answers. Now there are even cars that will parallel park for you. You just take your hands off, push a button in the steering wheel, and you just sit there while it parallel parks for you. I, I, I was only mildly kidding about the returns, right? You kind of go, eh, he's got a point. Eight bucks, I don't think I'm going to go to Target. I saw this principle the other day when my kids were playing Angry Birds, the scourge of a generation. Actually, I love Angry Birds. I just don't have time to play it. So I'm jealous of them when they get to. On Angry Birds, there's a, a, a thing you can purchase called the Mighty Eagle. How many know what the Mighty Eagle is? How many have bought the Mighty Eagle? Yes, I see those hands. You know where I'm going with this, right? The mighty eagle will complete a level for you when you're stuck. So rather than practicing, rather than learning the weak spots, rather than learning the trajectory of how those crazy birds should fly, once an hour you can tap a button and the mighty eagle will do it for you. Now that's cool for my kids, but I thought that is a metaphor for a culture. When I don't want to make the effort, I just get somebody else to do it for me. And that filters down to our approach on the economy. The government should pay my bills and provide all my needs. It goes back to the Occupy protests. The successful people owe me money because I don't want to work hard. 
It goes to whether we carry cash in our wallet because I can't be bothered with coins and bills, so just scan me. I even heard that the parent company of BlackBerry is in serious trouble because their service is not as consistent, and they even had a three-hour Internet blackout this week. Everybody gasp. <gasps> three hours. Can you imagine the horror? What will happen when the hackers and the terrorists wipe out our computers? Three hours. And RMI is probably going to bite the dust in the next three years because people say, I can't be three hours without my internet. And this filters down into the church and the thinking of Christians. Keep it all short. Keep it non-threatening. Hold it to 60 minutes. Don't make me come to prayer meeting, meet my needs, make relationships a higher priority than a true relationship with the Lord. And by the way, I'm busy, so don't expect much from me. I praise the Lord that's not true of this church. There's every reason that you have not to come on a sunny afternoon, one week from Christmas, to come to the women's club and set up tables and make tea sandwiches and for you ladies to bring your friends to a tea. You have every reason not to do that. But it requires effort to serve the Lord. I'm not talking works here. I'm talking understanding the price that Christ paid for us and responding with our lives. Because if we take the attitude of the culture, it will be a travesty. He condescended to us, not vice versa. And he did it because of our abject failure as people. That is the only reason for the baby in the manger. And he didn't just look the other way and excuse our sins and, and say with some kind of insincere regret, it's okay. He erases our sins and reconciles us completely. Praise his name. Now turn back to Luke 2 for a second and let's close this study by looking at one more principle. Because there's one more thought in Luke 2 I want you to get this morning. Earlier we sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That, that song was written by Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was our most prolific hymn writer. He wrote 6,500 hymns. I haven't even brushed my teeth 6,500 times. And he wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, one year after his conversion. Go back and look at the words later. You will be amazed by the depth from a new believer. Wesley's theory, Wesley's philosophy when he wrote hymns was that it had to be full of doctrine. Because his desire was that men and women, I quote here, might sing their way not only into experience, we're very into experience in Christianity 2011, but he says, I don't want you just to work your way into experience. I want you to work your way into knowledge. That is lacking in contemporary Christian music for the most part. So Wesley wrote great hymns full of doctrine because he wanted people to experience the presence of the Lord, but he also wanted them to know more about the presence of the Lord. And if you look at Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you will see that there are a number of great lyrical phrases that emphasize that principle. But four in particular stand out. Let me just give them to you real quick. God and sinners reconciled. In other words, 2 Corinthians 5, 
the reason why Christ came is that we were alienated from him and that he provided a way of salvation and restoration. Then Wesley puts the line, born that man no more may die. In other words, there's a curse on man, but the eternal effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice saves us from that and gives us the assurance of salvation for all eternity. Then Wesley says, born to give them second birth. That's a restatement of 2 Corinthians 5. It says that we are a new creation as God has reconciled us to himself through Christ and made us righteous. And then the last line that hit me about Hark the Herald Angels Sing is the one that we see here in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. The line from the song is, pleased as man with men to dwell. In verse 14, the angels say, God is able to be pleased with us. It may say goodwill, it may say good pleasure, but the bottom line is that God is able to be pleased with us. Now, as I thought about this week, that this week, I said to myself, why would God ever be pleased with me? Why would God ever be pleased with us? We have been nothing but a disappointment and an offense to Him. But here's the amazing thing about the Lord. His love is never diminished by who we are or what we have done. Now I want you to listen very carefully so I'm not misconstrued this morning. God's love is unconditional. Which means He totally loves us no matter what. Now people deny that and they say always the same question. Well, how can a loving God allow people to suffer? And they say it kind of arrogantly like God owes me an explanation why He would allow difficulty in my life. Well, there are two problems with that question. First of all, allowing suffering does not preclude His love. If your child has a life-threatening illness and they need painful treatment that will be completely effective in eradicating the treatment, of course you're going to do it. Now the child is going to have to suffer pain, and they're going to have to go through hardship, and that's going to be difficult to watch. But the net effect is that they are going to be restored. And the choice you have to make as a parent is, this will prove my love rather than exposing a lack of love. I am going to allow you to go through pain because I want you to be whole again. In the same way, the love of God sometimes allows us to go through difficulty so that we will become spiritually healthy. That doesn't mean He doesn't love us. It means that He does love us. Because He could say, I'll wipe you off the map. But He restores us and heals us. So allowing suffering doesn't mean God doesn't love us. The second thought is, God's love is not shallow or selfish. It's not conditioned by circumstances because His love never fails. Now, His mercy is tempered by what we believe. It's tempered by what we do. His holiness and justice demand that. But He has absolutely no delight this morning, that people are in hell. It has to be. People reject Him. People deny Him. People rebel against Him. 
They don't want reconciliation. They turn against him and curse his name. He cannot allow that because he's a holy and just God. And there has to be a hell because people will not trust in him. But he doesn't take any pleasure in hell. And to prove that, he keeps saying, look at my offer. Look at the baby in the manger. I'm providing redemption. I'm providing everything that you need to be delivered and reconciled and live with me forever. And when you do fail, Christian, I am slow to anger. I'm patient. I'm long-suffering. I'm rich in love. I proved it by sending Christ. And my love and redemption always brings you to reconciliation with Him. I am willing to exchange who you were for who you will be now. And I want to put you back in the original position, made in my image, free from sin, walking in fellowship with me every day. And here's the kicker, pleasing me. Pleasing me. And once we are in that position and I'm done, the words of the angels are fulfilled. We're free from fear and free from doubt. And instead of fear and doubt, we're full of great joy and we have peace. Because listen, when God is at peace with you, you will have peace in every area of your life. But the opposite is also true. Lack of peace or a disruption of peace reveals that something is inconsistent with who you are in light of the glory of God. So what describes you this morning? Don't just assume now, come on, don't just assume that, that all's well, joy's lacking, Paul, and peace is lacking, and praise is lacking in my life, but I'm fine, I'm good, it's just, I'm, I'm just busy, and I'm stressed. The eternal excuse that we have for ignoring the state of our walk. I'm just so, so busy, I just, I can't, yeah, I'm lacking, I, I don't have any joy right now. Why? God's reconciled you to Himself. Reconciliation produces a relationship that is deep and it's mature and it's overflowing with gratitude for what God has done in our lives. And listen, I understand circumstances. I understand them as well as anybody in this room. I know that circumstances can get you down and they can alter your level of happiness. But absolutely nothing should be able to take away that contentment that God is pleased with us. That Christ has done it all. Close your eyes for a minute. Let's just spend a moment with the Lord now. Let's ask the Lord to make it abundantly clear. Lord, are you pleased with me today? When you look at my life, do you see things that are hindering a pure, reconciled relationship with you that you provided? And if you know in your heart this morning as you go before the Lord that that's true, I, I pray you will ask the Lord to cleanse you and purify you. To restore unto you the joy of salvation. amazing even at Christmas which should be the happiest time of year more people kill themselves at Christmas than any other time of the year there's no joy 
Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Put me back in that reconciled relationship with you. I know you've saved me, but Lord, I'm not walking with you the way I should. The priority's not there. You made an eternal exchange at the cost of your own son. Father, there's no way that we can possibly express enough gratitude, enough praise for what you've done. It is mind-boggling that you came in Christ, in flesh, to reconcile the world to yourself. There's absolutely no reason for you to do that other than your great love. And Lord, we praise you this morning for the message of the angels. Giving you praise and honor first because you're the only one that is owed praise and honor. Glory to God in the highest. Throughout the heaven, throughout the universe, throughout all creation that we can't even count, you get glory. Lord, we praise you this morning that on earth you offer peace and restoration to every single person who lives. Even to the people, and this is true of all of us, who are filthy, who reject you, who want nothing to you because you say that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. So every one of us had that condition. Lord, we praise you that you offer that peace and that reconciliation. And Lord, we praise you as those who have received it, that for all eternity you have secured us. Lord, I pray at this time of year that we would be full in our hearts of joy and peace and the amazing awe of the fact that you are pleased to dwell with us. We thank you and we praise you. Lord, we love you so much. You are, you are just amazing. We praise you and honor you this morning for the work that you have done in reconciling us to you. We thank you and we praise you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.